Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And then he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Please play with me. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for all you've blessed us with. Thank you for granting us uh, another day to worship you and come and praise and worship. Please help us to open our ears to your word. Thank you for giving us Cody to such wisdom to come and explain your word to us and help us to understand. Let us take it in and apply it to our lives. Thank you for this country that we're able to live in, that we may freely worship you and and not be fearful of folks coming in and stopping us. Please let it always be so for us and our children and our children's children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Maybe seated. Again, it's a joy to open the Word of God with you. <clears throat> Mark chapter 10. It's an exciting day to be back and continuing our study in the book of Mark. We're in the book of Mark chapter 10, and we, as Paul has just read, are picking up our study in verse 13 and verse through verse 16. I wonder what it is that may have weighed you down this morning as you came into this building. As you got in the car this morning, I wonder what it is that has dominated your thoughts from this past week. What stresses might be in your life that are calling for you to consider even as we open the Word of God. And I wonder even more than that, what those burden, how those burdens are looked upon by you this morning. Many of us, I know, have come, of, come into this building, maybe all of us to some extent, with some level of burden, some more than others, some less. But as a Christian, as we open the Bible this morning, how do you view those burdens? Are they viewed as opportunities? Are they viewed as hindrances? The Christian views even the burdens of life different than the way the world does around us. Let's look at this, the text this morning that will give us some indication of how we are to view such burdens in our lives. Let me set the scene for you. We have just come from this earlier part in Mark chapter 10 where Christ has taught on divorce. We know that he has been teaching his disciples on what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. We saw this all the way back in Mark chapter 8. If you were not with us, you might just turn your Bible back to Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he begins to teach them, meaning the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And we made the remark in Mark chapter 8 that that is the hinge point of the entire book. Christ now turns from teaching the masses, though he will still do some of that, and really focuses his attention on preparing his disciples 
for his departure. We noted that he foretells his death and resurrection in chapter 8, verse 31, for the first time. He does it again in chapter 9, verse 30. And he'll do it again in a few weeks in chapter 10, verse 32. Three times in a row, and there's sort of a cycle to these things. Christ foretells, and somebody says, no, that can't quite be the case. First it was Peter, and then even some of the other disciples. Here in a few weeks, we'll see even James and John. Christ is teaching the masses, and we saw a couple weeks ago, chapter 10, that as he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And he was tested then by the Pharisees, and they break apart to a house, chapter 10, verse 10, just preceding verses of where we are this morning. And the disciples ask him a particular question about this teaching on divorce. And somewhere within that context then, people begin bringing Christ children. This is not the first time that we've seen in the Gospel of Mark children encountering Jesus Christ. Even one chapter back in chapter 9, verse 36, we saw Christ use a child as a teaching illustration. Look with me there, 936. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Chapter 942, he again picks up this thought of children with little ones. And it's interesting because here yet again in 10, 13 through 16, the disciples are getting a failing grade in the lab portion of what it means to be a true disciple. They've got a previous history of, rebu- of rebuking. They've stepped in more than one time and said, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't need to talk to Christ right now. He's busy doing ministry. We don't, you, he doesn't need to talk to the likes of you. Go away. And again, we see Christ dealing with his disciples and using even their failings to teach truth. For just the sake of simplicity this morning, if you're taking notes, we're going to take a look at this 13 through 16, sort of in two different uh, sections here, two different points, if you will. Section number one is verses 13 through 15. I've entitled it, A Childlike Faith. And then we'll look at the last verse, verse 16, which I've entitled, The Blessing of Jesus. We see here in 13 through 15, these children being brought to him and the disciples are rebuking these people, turning them away. Children, go away. This Christ is doing this work. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant or he was greatly displeased, your Bible might say, and said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. We have noted a couple times that the core of the teaching ministry of Jesus Christ is about the kingdom of God. He began his ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, with teaching about the kingdom of God. Chapter 4, and then chapter 9 as well, he mentions and talks about the kingdom of God. This text this morning could probably be well used even as a wonderful case for the sanctity of human life. That all ages are important, could be made from the point of this text. We see Christ here engaging people not just of 
uh, older adults, but he is even engaging people of all ages, not just the important ones, the adults, but even little children. All of these ages are valuable in the eyes of God. We can make that point. And that point is valid. But I think in doing so, we might miss the fact that these children are used to touch, teach a much greater lesson. What kind of picture does Christ want us to see with the analogy of these children? What is it like to have childlike faith? Is he calling us to, to be humble? Be humble as a child. I don't think so. I don't think Christ is highlighting humility here. And here's why I think that. If you look at chapter 9, verse 37 that I've already read, children, Christ is, is using a child in nine, chapter 9, verse 37 to highlight us being humble to serve children, which in that day, children were, were sort of an un, a lower class of race. So he's highlighting a true disciple is humble and serves others, all others, even children by way of example. And the more I've thought about children this week, I thought, you know, really quite frankly, children aren't very humble. They're innocent. They're sweet most of the time. They're delightful. But probably not very humble. They just have not come up with the sophisticated ways of us adults in displaying their pride. It comes across more sweet. Mommy, Daddy, look what I did. I did this. I colored all over the wall with my crayon. And we think, oh, how sweet, Johnny. Probably not humble. So what is this true nature of discipleship that Christ is using a child to display. And I think it's very clear. It's the teaching on dependence, or if you will, complete trust. Teaching that true disciples of Christ have been given the grace and eternal blessing to depend confidently and completely on God as revealed in Holy Scripture. Let me repeat that. The true disciples of Christ have been given the grace and eternal blessing to depend confidently and completely on God as revealed in Holy Scripture. Now Christ is not teaching that children have a, a way to saving faith different than adults. You see that in verse 14. We could take that and twist it. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. As if when a child comes, they, they get something that it, by way of earning that we do not. And that's not what he's teaching at all. He's teaching still as much as everyone that we must come to God through grace by faith even as adults do. He's simply using children to teach his disciples that following Christ looks like deplete, complete dependence on God. And Christ is greatly displeased with the disciples rebuking these children who want to have dependence or are showing their dependence upon God. And he addresses the disciples. And you notice the passage here is sort of in a, a two-part form. One side of the coin, so to speak, and then the other side. The first side is, you see, in verse 14. It's really an admonishment. And the second half is a warning. Truly I say to you, verse 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. All you, the while using these children to highlight the full dependence upon God that is required by the believer. Now, 
we need to be clear that there is a bit of warning that is needed as we approach this doctrine of childlike faith. This doctrine has been twisted. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. Christ is calling for a childlike faith, not a childish faith. Childlike faith, not, quote, a childish faith. We probably all heard someone say something to this effect. Doctrine divides, just give me Jesus. Or maybe, I'm called to a childlike faith. Jesus is all that is important. Let's not get distracted by the other stuff of Christianity. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians rebukes that type of thinking in 1 Corinthians 3. The Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews does as well, rebuking believers for their immaturity. He tells them, I want to teach you the meat. I want to give you the, the, the depths of the glory of God. I want to give you the, the protein, as it were, the hearty things of God, but I couldn't. I came to teach you that, and I found that you were still sticking with milk. You were still infants. You were still babes in the faith. The Bible calls for a childlike faith, not a childish faith. The Bible always is calling us to pursue diligently maturity in the deep things of God. Even Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I acted like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. The Apostle Paul tells us again in 1 Corinthians 14, Quote, brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants or be babes in evil, but in your thinking be mature. We think of a child and their sin. They, they haven't come up with the, the heinous, heinous and sophisticated ways that adults can sin. And, and seemingly, it, it, it's not innocent sin, it is sin, it's a sin against a holy God, but it, it's not to the great depravity that sometimes we see others doing and that's what he's calling us to be we, we, we we're we're going to sin and, and yet let us not pursue this sophisticated sin we shouldn't pursue sin at all and yet in our sin as we pursue mature thinking that our sin might be might be smaller as babes we think of by way of analogy a child i think of a, of an infant think of maybe abigail thompson just being born relying, fully trusting, depending even unconsciously upon her mother for everything and upon her father to care for her and to feed her and to help her. And then and Abigail will grow up and, and becomes a toddler. And then that toddler grows up and becomes a, a seven or eight-year-old. And as they grow into their teen years, their maturity about how they view their parents grows as well. The toddler comes to dad and says, Dad, as Brendan did this week, fix my motorcycle, hot glue it. He's fully convinced that I can hot glue that motorcycle. The seven or eight-year-old knows that dad may not be able to fix the hot glue motorcycle, the motorcycle hot glue, but he can certainly have the money to go buy another motorcycle. Or that dad can not only throw the football, but he can teach you how to throw the football. And yet what happens as we sort of go along in our physical maturity and we get to the teen years and we think, huh, no, I don't need dad and mom as much as they, I think I need them. And that's how it can oftentimes go with the Christian faith. We get deeper into our maturity and we begin thinking, 
think I've got this a little bit. I think I've got some things figured out. As a child, uh, even a, a toddler, we, you, you see a toddler delight when dad tosses him into the air. Mom might look upon with horror and yet the child goes, throw me higher and higher. Never giving thought for even a moment that dad wouldn't catch him. Of course dad's going to catch us. Dad's strong. He's never dropped me before. Brothers and sisters, I, I think it, probably for some of us, pointing the finger at myself this morning, that we need to rethink how we approach our relationship with God even this coming week. We need to get back to a, a simple, delightful dependence on the inerrant word of God. We need to go back to the things of Scripture and trust Him implicitly for what He said. Will we take God at His word? Is His word enough for us? Will we fully submit to the authority of God in our lives? The teaching of Christ here, calling for full dependence, full submission to Him, is is not somehow new in the book of Mark here. It's not just come about as in, oh, here's a, a fresh new teaching on how you're to relate to God. All the way back into the garden with Adam, God is called for full dependence upon him. You see him recalling the, the nation of Israel, his people, to full dependence upon him. You see him calling King David to full dependence upon him. He calls us as believers to full dependence upon him. And this dependence and, and this, this trust is not easy. We know that. You could think of workplace integrity this morning. What do, you, what do you do when you're a Christian? When you want to be a man or a woman of integrity with your, with your sales numbers or with your expense report or with your job, your reputation on the line, will we depend fully upon God? Will we trust rather than in our, our riches as some sort of safety net? Will we trust him with our marriage? Will we trust him with our health? What about our finances this morning? What about our parenting? Will you trust him? Two even practical barometers of how you're doing that you might use as a measurement for how well you're trusting God could be found in the, in the simple means of grace that is prayer time and sleep. We have a, a go, 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 go culture And the only time you're ever supposed to stop in our culture is to get a cup of coffee so you can go faster, right? And yet a good measure of how well you're doing with dependence upon God is will you slow down enough to pray this week? Will you slow down enough to realize that he never slumbers nor sleeps and that you must sleep as a reminder of weakness in the face of his strength? Or... We could think of an evidence of childlike trust in God with with our church today. There is the many uh, ways to grow a church. And trust me, I've seen uh, many ways that that have been told to me of how you could grow your church. I've read lists, you know, top 100 ways to get more people into your church. But will we submit ourselves to the unpopular growth strategy of being bold and and faithful to believe that Scripture is sufficient for life and godliness? Will we be faithful to evangelize and make disciples? God's method, methods of church growth. And if you think that I'm immune from looking outside God's word to grow this church, think again. 
I'm tempted toward that as much as we are all tempted to not trust God with our daily lives. The question at the end of the day that you and I have is simply, will we take God at his word? The story is told of James Hudson Taylor, the pioneering missionary to China. Many of you have probably heard of him. and His faith on the mission field was again and again tested by whether or not he would have the means to support his work. Early on in his ministry, he took over the operation of a hospital with what seemed like no visible support for his ministry. There was a doctor that was in charge of the hospital, Dr. William Parker, who was a medical missionary. He had established this hospital, and due to some suffering in his life, albeit the death of his wife, he was called back to Scotland. And he handed the hospital over in its practice to Hudson Taylor, who was a doctor himself. The hospital was no small undertaking. They were seeing 50 inpatients on any given day. There was many expenses for, for medications that they were giving out free. And the question was quickly, how will this work be supported? Unlike today, there were no electronic transfers of funds in 19th century China. So if Hudson Taylor wanted to get any funds and you just write a letter and say, hey, I've just taken over this hospital, send me funds of support, it would be five months before that letter would even make it from Shanghai to London and then back again. There were no funds on hand to even cover the month's expenses when he took over. Hudson Taylor's own supplies were running low, and yet if you've read anything about Hudson Taylor, he was a man of prayer, and so he doubled his efforts in prayer, seeking the Lord. And then toward the end of that month, the serious news came that the last bag of rice of food had been opened and was disappearing. Some of us may have been jolted by that news, and yet Hudson Taylor was not. He stated to his cook, then the Lord's time for helping us must be close at hand. One of the greatest attributes of, a husband, of Hudson Taylor was that he knew that God as a loving father never, ever fails to respond to his children's needs. It was said of him that he knew that while God seldom shows up early, he is never too late. Brothers and sisters, our lack of dependence upon God, maybe even in the face of Hudson Taylor this morning, our lack of trust in God is really what was at the center of all our problems this week. We have the confession of sin that we've already had in our worship service this morning. Because this week, I'm sure you, like myself, decided that sinning was a better choice. Because we did not believe, we did not trust, we did not depend upon that which God has said. And instead of obeying Him, we have disobeyed. Instead of obeying Him with the trust that with that obedience comes the promise of joy and happiness... We gave ourselves to the lie that sin's pleasure equals happiness. And we all know that that did not work out too well. But here in Mark 10, verse 14, Christ gives this universal call for all of us. For all whole world, come unto me, all that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This has been the, the call throughout all of the Bible. Come to the mount, he tells the Israelites, and worship me. Come to the temple, the tabernacle, and worship me. Come out of Egypt and worship. And yet in each of those instances, we see the people of Israel afraid because they were invited into the presence of God 
And yet they knew that his presence was a holy presence. Whether it's Moses or whether it's Joshua. Called to remove their shoes. To expose their their feet, their creatureliness in God's presence. Because his presence was one of holiness. Or whether the high priest entering the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of the people. The people knew we're invited to come to God. But on his terms. In holiness, in purity, in humility, in dependence. You see the second half of this first point here, a childlike faith in verse 15, is a word of warning, highlighting that the heart of man rebels against the ways of God, that we cannot enter the kingdom of God on our own merit or by our own ways. We cannot enter God, enter the kingdom of God in any other way than in full dependence on Christ. It cannot be trusting Christ and our works or whatever else it might be. To get us there. It must be trusting only on Christ. Depending on his life alone. To gain us entrance to the kingdom. You might give thought to the core of Christianity. There's two fundamental truths at the core of Christianity that apply to faith. Number one. Ephesians 2 tells us that we have been saved by grace through faith. But point number two. We also know that the righteousness of Christ given to you as a believer. Now allows you to live by faith. You were saved by faith and his righteousness, Christ's righteousness, now allows you to live by faith. Or, throughout scripture we're told the righteous shall live by faith or shall live by trust. Trust in your works? No. Trust in your heritage? No. Your wealth, your health, your beliefs, your church attendance? No. Trust in God. Because we know if fundamentally there's a difference in believing in God and believing God. Going to church isn't believing God. Having your family as those who are believers is not believing God. Dependence on God must look and function according to his word. Romans 8, 8 says that those of flesh cannot please God. Our dependence on God looks like faith, saving faith found in Jesus Christ alone. Christ provided for us even the perfect example in his full obedience submission to the will of his Father. In fact, it is Christ's submission to the Father that has granted us this morning the ability to submit as believers. So I might just ask you, if you're here this morning and you recognize that you have never come to God in saving faith through Christ, what is keeping you from that this morning? What is keeping you from trusting in full dependence on God for salvation from sin and the blessing of eternal life? Is it your past sin? Here we have in the context of Mark chapter 10, the sin of, of unfaithful divorce, unbiblical divorce. Is it your sin? You, If you knew what I've done in my life, you would also agree that there is no way I can be saved. What's keeping you from that? Brothers and sisters, let's not have an immature faith. We have no hope this morning of entering the kingdom of God based on our full and complete dependence. We cannot enter on our full and complete dependence because we will never have We know that clearly, a full and complete dependence upon God as we ought to have. 
You and I both know that the days of depending fully on God have been few and far between. And so going back, we we don't simply have a a confession of sin as an aspect of our liturgy. We also have an assurance of pardoning grace, calling calling us to remember that though we didn't believe in God at that moment, or for me, many moments this week when we chose sin over obedience, Christ never chose sin. He always chose obedience and purchased for us eternal pardon by his blood. And so we plead for grace. That grace that we know covers all sin. And if even if, if it's just once a week on Sunday morning, for grace to believe what God says when he says he has given us pardoning grace. That he is our high priest who Hebrews 7 tells us has been, a single, has been the single offering himself on the cross has perfected for all times those who have been sanctified. So because you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, by God's grace, then we must be reminded that whatever it is that you came through those doors being burdened by, you came in today in the context of a loving Heavenly Father. As a child that would, that would go to his dad, as I've mentioned by way of analogy, fully convinced that dad can fix the broken toy, will we not go to him with full confidence that he can deal with whatever that burden is? That he is sympathetic even to our, our plight. The Bible tells us even that of how to live as those who have full dependence on his grace for our failures and yet fully engaged in laboring diligently. We don't like the two extremes of that, right? How does one fully depend and yet fully labor? And the Bible tells us it's called the fear of God. It's the beginning of wisdom. So the question again for us this morning is, will we depend upon what God has said? The only one, the only being that deserves our complete and unwavering trust has, is God. And I might just ask you this morning, has God ever lied to you? Is there a promise that he's given you in his word that he has ever fallen short of completing? Has his love ever faltered? Has he ever not provided for you as his child? I think by way of simple application, it, we might be all well served this week if we would but plunge all into the word of God yet afresh, in full dependence that as we hunger and thirst for him, as a deer pants for water, so we will find abundant, sweet refreshment for our souls in the form of seeing him and his eternal character that much more clearly. Point number one, a childlike faith. True disciples of Christ have been given the grace and eternal blessing to depend confidently and completely on God as revealed in Holy Scripture. Point number two, verse 16, the blessing of Jesus. Look at this picture here. He took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. The, child, the children came. But they were not guaranteed the blessing of Christ. They were not guaranteed that he would lay his hands on them. There was no merit in them that said, yes, I will place my hands upon you. Christ here, choosing to place his hands, choosing to bless solely by his grace. For the non-Christian, Christ is the, is the only way. 
Will you believe that the only way of blessing of eternal life through Jesus Christ is submitting yourself to his nail-pierced hands for you and placing his, the placing of his hands upon your life? Will you give yourself to his way in your life? The universal call of the gospel is here clearly in this passage. Come and come and come. All who are weary, who are burdened, come to Jesus. And yet the truth that we know is, to that call, only some will respond. Many will turn away in hardness. And so for the unbeliever, if you find yourself in that scenario this morning, will you respond this morning? Christ is your only hope. God says he is the only way. There's not a a drive-through menu where you could sort of pick a la carte. I'll take Christ and, and, and this and that and that to get me to heaven. No, there's only one way, and that's the best way, and that is through Jesus Christ. It's clear this passage is stating for us that salvation is not confined to age or maturity or lifestyle or choice of a church or wealth or history of sin, as I mentioned earlier, as an as impediment to coming to Christ, or your goodness, or all your badness. Salvation is by God's grace. The kingdom is not confined to an age, or a culture, or a race, or a certain bank account, or a lifestyle, or a history of right choices, or innocent, or guilt. The kingdom of God is for sinners, from the youngest to the oldest, through Christ. So for Christians, for you today, we must come away. I pray that you come away encouraged this morning. That you have the blessing of Jesus that is the eternal blessing of God. The words of Christ himself in John 10, 29. My Father who has given them to me, meaning you as a believer, is greater. God is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch you out of the Father's hands. This scene of Christ laying his hands on the children and blessing them is a delightful one for many reasons. And let me just by way of closing, highlight one specific way this morning that I think is especially encouraging for us. Leviticus 4, we have described for us the sin offering, the process there. Wherefore the unintentional sin of the children of Israel, which, which the children, and, 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 and by implication even all of us this morning, have certainly committed unintentional sin. We have committed sin knowingly, but my guess is, as I stated in my confession of prayer this morning, that on the final day of judgment, we will recognize that the vast majority of our sin that demands God's punishment is is the, the sin that was even unintentional. We didn't realize we were doing. The process here in Leviticus 4 is that the priest would take an animal, I pray you see this in your mind, and he would take his hands and he would place his hands on the animal, on the head of the animal, thus signifying the transfer of the sins of the people of Israel or the person from the person till the guiltless animal. And then the animal would be killed and the blood would be placed on the horns of the altar, and I quote from Leviticus 4, as incense before the Lord as a reminder to the Lord that the sins of the people had been atoned for by the blood of the animal. And here in Mark, you see in the picture of these children, we see ourselves, and yet the role has been reversed. Instead of us being killed, when the high priest Jesus Christ places his hand of blessing upon us, he was killed. 
once and for all in our place. And it is his blood that cleanses us from all our sin. It is his blood that God looks upon for all of eternity as full payment for our sin. The blood of the animal would wear away, but the blood of Christ never wears away for the believer. It is his blood that assures not only our salvation, but even our adoption as children, the blessing of Jesus Christ. Because of that blessing, you have a Savior this morning who looks upon you with compassion and care. In closing, Thomas Goodwin was a Puritan. He lived in the 1600s. He was an English Puritan theologian. He was a preacher, and he served as a chaplain to Oliver Cromwell. And one of the treatises for which he was most well known was the the book, which was sort of a sermon as well, entitled, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. And he writes to believers and to us this morning, quote, Your very sins move Christ to pity more than to anger. Even as the heart of a child is, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease, or as one is to a member of his body, your hand maybe that has leprosy, he hates not the member for it is his flesh, but hates the disease. And that provokes him to pity the part affected the more. If your child becomes very sick, you do not kick the child out. You weep with him and tend to his needs. Christ responds to our sins with compassion despite his abhorrence of them. Close quote. Brothers and sisters, if you are here today as a believer in Jesus Christ, may I be so bold to declare as you, to you this morning, there is nothing, there is not one thing that can remove from you the blessing of God through Jesus Christ on your life. Because unlike the sacrificial animal whose blood on the altar would fade, our Savior Christ was raised from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God pleading for you. So we began this morning with the question of what do we do with our burdens? And let's close with that same question. What will the world see this week from the burdened lives of us at FCF? What will Fredericksburg see? And I trust by his grace that they will see undeserving yet grateful people delighted in depending on Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, it is with great joy that we have seen afresh your goodness and love for us. Father, we thank you for Christ who was fully dependent and submitted to your will and way. And that his full obedience and submission to you and dependence upon you has been merited to us. We plead afresh, Father, this week that we might give you glory. Help us to see more clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ that enables us to boldly and confidently in the face of whatever circumstances, whatever burdens there may be, to trust you. We thank you for the grace that you promised to supply. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.